Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. And it is it is awesome that I get to interview you. It is awesome. <laughs> we go way back. We go way back. So, so everyone needs an origin story. Mm-hmm. So, so, and I know you have an amazing one, and I don't know if everyone really knows about your origin story. So maybe you could talk to the group a little bit about your origin story of how does someone like you go from Wall Street to genomics? Yeah. So for me, it, it seems really obvious. So the beauty of Wall Street is it's kind of nonspecific. You're just researching everything, and you're researching. I would research xenotransplantation. I was looking at hospitals. I was looking at insurance companies. So I felt like I really got to know a lot about healthcare in general. But one of the areas I happened to be looking a lot at was genetics. So I was looking at human genome science, Affymetrics, Insight, um, Millennium, and um, and was like fascinated by the power of genetics and what was happening and the you know the the cost curve and you know, a lot of those companies were talking about like the potential of, you know, genetic-based medicine and the ability to find new therapies that had a human genetic component. It was going to really change drug discovery. And at the same time, I also, the more I started getting into healthcare, I started realizing that like, like what was in my best interest wasn't really represented in the entire system. And I had a few really awful like, it's kind of interesting. I've been watching the TV show Billions, too. But it reminds me, obviously, of my Wall Street days. Like, people sometimes say really awful things, and they just, like, are totally unaware. So I had this one hospital CEO, and he was like, oh, we're seeing margin expansion. It's so great. He's like, we just moved collections into the emergency department, so we get people on the gurney. He's like, oh, we go, we go after him right away. And, you know, people, <laughs> I mean, like, even recently, we have a company that we work with that, you know, the uninsured pay rack rate. So technically in this country, the poorest people in the country pay the most. And we were looking at direct pay options that would be cheaper. And then they finally backed out and they're like, no, no, no. We realize that even though it's only 1% of our volume, it's 3% of our bottom line. And so even though there's like a moral issue that they're charging people, the poorest people the most because it's making money, they're not going to change it. And you know, we talked about this in the earlier session. Like one thing that I grew up with is like a community of academics who like were really passionate about what they did and really moral, like people, um, people that can't be bought. And in some ways, like the scariest people in the world are people who can't be bought because they're going to do what they want and they can't be pressured and they can't be purchased. They can't be swayed. And I feel like, like I have a little of that. Like I, I had a real moral bent. Like, I wasn't interested in being on Wall Street just for the money. I was interested in being on Wall Street because, like, I was, like, really interested in healthcare. Like, I thought, like, I could deploy capital and I could drive incentives in the right way. And I was really disappointed that, in fact, I was, like, helping propagate a system where, you know, it was all about, like, how do I monetize obesity in China, Uh, My sister studies obesity at UCSF, and she would talk about obesity in the coming crisis. And then I would give, like, obesity, the ultimate money-making opportunity. And (laughs) I remember people would look at me like I was totally evil. And even now, I sit on the board of Kaiser's Medical School, and I was showing them. I was like, no, Fidelity has an obesity tracker. And they're like, no. I'm like, yeah, they do. Like, there's an ETF that just, like, tracks obesity-related stocks. So... The reality is I felt like there wasn't, like no one makes money on keeping me healthy and that really just like felt awful and I spent a lot of time investing in the HIV community in the late 90s and I was really inspired by the activists and I was also kind of inspired by these people who like in my mind were really moral in mission, like they were doing the right thing. Like, they were disseminating information. They were storming the FDA. They were going after Glaxo. Like, they were doing all... Like, they were activists. They were out there. They had a mission. 
And I felt like, like the rest of the healthcare world, like we're all kind of like passive lambs. It's like communist society. We're all just there waiting for like big brother to tell us what to do. I was like, we need a way to activate people. And 23andMe really kind of came out of this idea that I want to activate people. I want to give a platform that's genuinely in the right interest of individuals. And what we all want is not necessarily how to like effectively, you know, be medicated at 100, but you want to be healthy at 100. And I want to have a platform that's really going to do the right interest for individuals and give people a voice and not treat people like human subjects and but treat them like people and say like, hey, like we all have, we're all 99.5% the same. We all have this collective interest in health. Like let us actually like share our common, you know, background and like all try to be healthier together. And so 23andMe kind of came out of, in some ways, 10 years of experience of watching what I think is really bad. And in some ways I feel like I use on an almost daily basis what I learned to make sure that we're like trying to use it in the right ways now at 23andMe. Can you talk to us a little bit about those early brainstorming days? You know, that was a time where, you know, the, the idea of sequencing was still this kind of like, it's almost this aspirational science thing. And people, yeah. like, so I'm, I'm wondering, like, what were you writing on the whiteboard as you guys were, were thinking about this and trying to hone this into a, an active, crisp thing that could be executed against? I have, you know, it's funny, I have those pictures of our whiteboards. It's like one advantage of always taking pictures of stuff. You know, in some ways, like our, it, maybe it was like this in the early computer days, like you can just see a vision. Like at some point, sequencing was going to be everywhere. It was just obvious. Like that was going to happen and the cost curves were going to continue to go down. And it's like, it's like mirrors. Like it's, your genome is like a digital representation of you. So at some point it's going to be omnipresent. Like everyone's going to know their genetic information. It's going to happen. So what's really unusual about 23andMe is how much our series A deck is similar to our series F. Like a lot of companies change their vision over time and they iterate and we've had to change parts of like, we originally said we're not regulated and clearly we are, but you know, the, the, we didn't change our mission. Like we're still direct to consumer. Like we didn't, we didn't vary there. So in those early days, you know, the, like some of the fundamentals have never changed. Like genetic information is really interesting to people and it's a core technology and it's going to get cheaper and cheaper over time. And the two big hypotheses we had were, will people share information about themselves online the same way they do Livestrong and Susan G. Komen? Like, will people come? Can we create a community? And the second thing is, like, can people accurately put their information in online? And because we self-report, we get self-reported data, we have over 2 billion data points on our customers. And there was always this question. Like, people always said, like, oh, people can't self-report. I'm like, well, when I go to the doctor and I see the doctor and he asks me my family history, like, what do you think I do? I self-report. So it was kind of like, there's, like, again, the one thing I learned in healthcare is, is all this paternalism and all these assumptions about how utterly incapable you are. And it's one thing, again, I learned. Like, people are actually much more capable than we ever expected. So those were, like, the big hypotheses that we had out there. But we always knew social, like web 2.0 was coming. It was like social was coming. And, um, and the technology curve was coming. Like, I think my, my presentation pitch was like purely just like Moore's law plus live strong plus like flicker. <laughs> and like, like we raised money. Like, I well, mean, just what, kind what, of on that you concept. talk to these investors, you know, you guys were really the first ones out there. As, as, if I if I recall, and so you have a whole bunch of investors who are still just, you know, social media at that point. LinkedIn is just starting. Yeah. it's still a MySpace world. Totally. You know, Facebook's not there, and, and so that's the era. How did the investors kind of get their head around this, or how did you get their head around it? It, it will, given that it's such a paradigm shift, and they probably don't know any of the biology or the no. other aspects. I think investors, again, part of it was the chat, like, because I come from the investor world, I kind of know, or I have this knowledge, like, at least that 
all the all my peers. I was like, I'm not raising money from any of my peers. I would never want them involved um, because they don't really like their incentives are to make money. Like they don't really know anything. So finding the right investors was always really hard. It was a hard priority for us. We're lucky. We got Patrick Chung from NEA. You know, in some ways, like he didn't totally understand everything, but he heard the pitch and he wrote a check 24 hours later. And it's one of those things, like, it's like dating. You never grovel with your date. Like, oh, please go out with me again. Please. Investors, you should have the same approach. If it's not the right fit, like, I'll be in a meeting sometimes and I see them asking questions and I'm like, oh, no, 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 we're done. Like, no, you don't get it. And we went through it. Like, we met, we took a bunch of meetings and people don't understand necessarily, like, Healthcare people are, again, a lot of, especially traditional healthcare investors are really pessimistic about the potential of the consumer. And then a lot of consumer people and tech people are like, what is this healthcare? It's regulated. Like, I remember Larry Page coming out once and saying, like, healthcare is awful. It's, like, regulated. I never want to get in it. So we had a hard time finding the right investors. We got a lot of really great seed investors, like people like Richard Branson, um, who you know, didn't really know anything, but was like, I don't know, it sounds crazy and cool. And I think people who in general are just interested in like, there's going to be a radical change at some point in healthcare and technology. And it's in some ways, we had one investor too, who invested in us. And then he clearly didn't fully get it. And then six months later invested in a competitive company. And we're like, you, you can't do that. And he's like, well, we did. I was like, well, you have to take your money back then. And they actually did. So we gave them back their million dollars in their Series A. But I, I was like, I kind of ran a hard line. Like, you have, to, you have to be a supportive investor. But it's really hard sometimes get finding people who, who um, can get your idea, especially when it's more out there. And the only thing you can do is, like, you keep, you keep going. And you keep trying. Like, Sequoia, we met with Sequoia a bunch of times. They were awful. And they invested in our last round. You know, and I went into the meeting. I was like, I just want to lay it on the table. You guys were awful. And um, I'm only here kicking and screaming. And like, <laughs> you know, like I think I'm a huge, like one of my other philosophies, I'm a, and Carrie's in the back, she can vouch for this. I'm a huge fan of being transparent. Like someone asked me, they're like, oh, you know, like I never have to prepare for media. I don't have to prepare for much because like I always, <laughs> I just like, I always say what's on my mind. Like I never... It's so obvious. I never lie. I never say anything. I never, like, try to, like, oh, well, how am I going to, like, frame this in the right way? Like, no. People always know how I stand. And so with the investors, it's, like, also kind of similar. Where I was like, like, no, this is what we're going to do. And So how does that, you know, especially for all the, the founders and others that are, that are listening to this, as they think about, you know, we have that kind of founder story of, like, inspiration and then just... It was just a hockey stick. It, it, and, you know, here it's easy to look at it retrospectively of all the success that's, that's happened for you and, and the company. But it hasn't always been a rocket ship. You know, healthcare is hard. And, you know, you guys, uh, you guys yeah. went toe-to-toe with the FDA. You know, you've kind, of, you've kind of seen all these different challenges and you've kind of dealt with them one at a time. What, what's the advice that you have for people as, as you kind of look back and, and through that lens of, you know, you're dealing with healthcare, and you're yeah. dealing with regulations where pe- there's all sorts of complexity. People don't actually understand you. They come with alternative agendas. There's others who have alternative agendas that influence them. What's the advice to to stay strong and keep that keep powering through that? I think you know we we've been successful of late, but I, I again I I still feel like we have so much more to do. So we we had I mean the first you know, 10 years of the, or nine years of the company, but it was a slog. And, you know, in some ways, like when you don't, when you have a mission and you really care, like you don't care about it being hard. And I remember at some, like even when we had our FDA shutdown, I had someone, um, what, like a regulatory advisor um, at one of our investors, uh, she was at a big, what with the pharma company, she's like, Anne, you have two choices. Um, one, you can, like go and you can hack it together. You can like figure out a way to circumvent it and you can sell the company. But if you really want to change the system, you just put your head down and you do the hard work. Like you figure out how 
to get this approved as a direct-to-consumer. And that is how you're fundamentally going to change the system. And the, the one thing I can say now in retrospect is that there's something about really sticking to something. And I remember in the early days, we were randomly at this dinner with, um, with the U2 band after a concert. And Bono sang. He's like, the reason... Someone was asking, why are you successful? He said, the reason why we're successful is in part because we've stuck together and we work through our conflict. And he's like, beauty really comes out of conflict and resolving it. And it always kind of stuck with me. It's like that there's something about like sticking it out and not giving up. And people always ask, like, oh, didn't you think about folding the company at some point? And I remember one of my senior people in the company at the time of the FDA letter was like, Anne, you know most companies just like fold up at this time. And it never occurred to me. I was like, like, it was kind of to me, I was like, you're such a wimp. Like what, like a little conflict? You can't handle a little conflict? So, you know, there's always a solution. And, and part of it is, I mean, there's two aspects. Like one is recognizing like when you should give up. Because like we definitely, like we have projects in house all the time where we start a project, you try it for a while. And at some point you're like, wow, this is like a failure and it's going to sink. But then there's other times where you just recognize like, like for us, you know, something like an FDA, the warning letter we have, like, this is workable. But you just, like, it's hard. And there's a lot of stuff, like, Silicon Valley has a little bit of the mentality, especially outside of the healthcare space, where it's like, oh, you know, Instagram, WhatsApp, you can make money so fast. Like, nothing happens quickly in healthcare. And it is a slog. But if you really want to change it, I mean, again, I think the thing that motivates people in this building is the mission. And it takes a, it takes a long time convince people not not of the mission but that you know we're sitting in this they walk down the street they see their friends you know they see the quick payouts they're in the slog they're you know you question mission sometimes how do you get your team to stay focused on the mission and how do you also attract people that you know to your point that can't be bought How, how do you test for that how do you get that 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 notion in there you know, I think it's through the actions of the company. Like, I think it's things that we, you know, everyone has a story of their own health, like that resonates with people. And, you know, like one of the things that we try to let people do, like in those early days, we would let people like run their own research studies. Like, so like my general counsel, she had, her father had a disease and like we ran a whole research study kind of like based on that. Like we did things you know, we, we give a lot of data away to academic collaborators as well. So we kind of try to encourage people, you know, to be able to pursue some of the interests that they really want. I think one of the things um, culturally, like culture is really important and it's hard to ever specifically define culture. But like one thing that's really important here is like we, we treat people like adults, like the same way I want to treat my customers. I think we try to treat people well. And you know, like part of it is that like you treat people, you know, you don't micromanage, you don't try to like micromanage their hours, you don't try to like second guess everything and your actions like stay really focused. Like I think we demonstrate continuously through decisions about the mission. And I think in some ways, like one of the ways that you demonstrate your dedication to the mission is through controversy. Like we demonstrated our commitment to the direct to consumer pathway through the, through the FDA shutdown. Like, we could have easily changed and said, no, 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 we'll be an LDT and we'll be physician-ordered and we'll be back on the market really quickly. And we chose not to do that. So I think that those types of things attract people. I also think for the right kind of person, like when you ask, like, what the people who can't be bought, um, those are people who like hard problems. You know, there are people who are not necessarily, they're not looking to make a quick buck. Like, they're interested in, like, a challenge. Like, like I say all the time, like, one thing, like, we have, you know, the world's largest, you know, group of people who um, are genetically high risk for Alzheimer's. It's a really interesting problem. Like, what should we do? We have lots of people who are, you know, 40, 50. How do we actually think about running a study to see whether or not we can do any kind of behavioral interventions that think about prevention, And I think one thing that also encourages people is like we kind of like everyone has crazy ideas and we encourage them. 
And I have times where, you know, it can be someone on the customer care team or like a junior engineer and they bring up an idea and they flag something that they don't like in the company or they have an idea on something and that changes the course of the company. And so I think also things like that too, that like you have to demonstrate everything through actions of like, wow, like people really believe that they're empowered and, you know, someone can be sick or a family member or people have kids like you know, we give fertility benefits, we give six weeks of paternity leave, like, we try to, like, walk the walk, like, we have an organic local chef, because I feel like, like, you know, I'm sitting here telling you how important it is to be healthy, so we have a trainer, and we have food, like, because I believe, like, I'm telling all my customers, like, it's important what you eat and how you exercise, and so we walk the walk. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's important to think about these things as like every single day, your actions reflect your culture and whether or not people believe you. And at any moment in time, people can stop believing you. Let's switch gears a little bit to, to where things are going in the space. So we, we got to really know each other just before I went into the administration. We might have been hiking and I led you down a path with a lot of poison oak. I did get poison oak. <laughs> Thank you. We did a study then on poison oak because of, we're actually analyzing the data now, whether or not some people are genetically more susceptible. But it's hard to define whether or not you know you were ever exposed. And people don't want to come in for a study where we like rub them with poison oak. (laughs) I'm not sure our, I don't know, maybe the IRB would probably be fine with that. (laughs) The IRB benefits if they're going out hiking. (laughs) So, so, you know, one of the things that I've, I've always appreciated about you is, especially as you know, when we had a chance to work on precision medicine and you really influenced my thinking is that you were almost always two to three steps ahead of seeing how the field is going to play out. And so how do you see the field playing out with the notion of genomic and tailored medicine? I'm actually less focused on genomic and tailored medicine because I think like that's a 10 year haul. So we, we started like in part we were doing, we do partnerships with most pharma companies and we did partnerships in part, you know, we were doing partnerships with pharma companies to show that we could actually help them with their drug discovery. But there was so much resistance and so much skepticism and like constant like questioning like, oh, you know, is like you don't have you don't have the full genome and like self-reported data. And can we really trust this? And I don't know, is it really going to benefit So we said, you know, like, screw you. We're going to start our own drug discovery company. And we hired Richard Scheller from Genentech. And we now have 13 drugs in early and late stage development or early and late stage research. And we have specifically the goal, like, can I show that by starting with a human genetic foundation, I can do drug discovery with a higher success rate and more efficiently than the rest of the industry? So this is kind of a perfect example of patience because this is not something that I can say like, oh, next year, I'm going to prove it out. Like until I have like five drugs on the market, I can't really make a lot of claims. So this is like in 10 years. So I believe I have a very valid hypothesis that I can make, you know, I can have more successful drug discovery than the rest of the industry, but I don't have the data yet to prove that. What I find really interesting right now I kind of look at the company as three divisions. Um, We're not separated this way at all, but mentally I think about it. So I have drug discovery, I have my consumer division, and then I have prevention. And there's a whole world. We have 7 million customers. And there's a whole world about thinking, like, people get their genetic information. I can tell you you're high risk for type 2 diabetes or, um, you know, Alzheimer's. Like, what can I now do to help you actually be healthier? And so that's where I actually see this world that's happening now of digital therapeutics and digital phenotyping on your phone. That's kind of amazing because in some ways I feel like we're, we're not at this point yet, but we're going to flip from like diagnostics being in your physician office as the gold standard to that being like awful because you can get so much data on your phone. Like I can track your sleep. I can track your movement. I could track your eyes. Like I could do hearing tests. Like you can kind of measure everything with your phone. And so I'm not positive. Like when you go into the doctor's office and they do a series of cognitive tests, like one time, like you're going to get so much more information off tracking people through their phone. So I think there's a phenomenal world 
about digital phenotyping that's coming. And I think the other reality is that healthcare today is this episodic experience of like, you go to your doctor once a year and like they tell you something and sometimes you remember, sometimes you don't. Your primary care is going to be on your phone. Like, why do you ever need to go in to your doctor? Like, if your child has a fever, why not call the company Heal and they come to your doctor's house for $99 and then, and there's this other company we met then that will like look at like all the sort of socioeconomic factors. Like if I, if you're on a diuretic and your bedroom's above stairs and your bathroom's downstairs, like, well, like maybe you're going to have a fall risk because you're going like, there's so many other parts of healthcare other than just the diagnosis. So I think there's an amazing world that's coming and none of it is predicated necessarily on being in the clinic. So I'm most excited about that potential. So let's take that another dimension because we, we're living in a global world and we've seen the race of countries like China trying to, you know, we start put 20 million in for precision medicine and they're like, great, we'll put 9 billion. <laughs> you know, we've seen them run Love with, China. <laughs> they're, they're like, we got the AI report we put out. They're like, great, thank you. And we're going to invest like everything we can. So in this race to... Uh, you know, drug discovery and all these things. I, I almost look at it, and correct me if this is wrong, is, is almost like you're in a race that isn't just U.S.-centric. You are in a, in, a, in a very multinational race, and your competitors are bringing not just dollars from venture, they're bringing state resources. Yeah. How does this play out? You know, and obviously there's an ethics question in there, not only for cybersecurity, but CRISPR and all the other activities. But I'm just, like, if we just kind of relegate that to the, the playing field of how does this play out with different countries playing in the direct line of 23andMe, how does that look to you over, overall? I do worry most about China, in part because I feel like they don't necessarily play by a lot of the rules, and they do have... They don't play by the rules. They have obedience and they have money. So like my sister, she's living in Japan right now and she just called me and she was like, I heard about a program where like all school children in Shanghai are mandated to like spit and be in a genetics testing study. And I don't know. I mean, there's just like stuff that like that would never happen here. (laughs) So I think that there's a race in informatics on genetics and, you know, this country is definitely not winning it. And, you know, the government, I mean, I think that's where you have somewhat of a disconnect. It's almost like, again, Tesla or Elon Musk with SpaceX and and NASA. You know, like when I look at NIH trying to get their million genome program off the ground, like it's just inept. So, you know, we, like we're at 7 million, we'll be much bigger, like we'll, we'll be able to grow much faster. But I do worry about countries like China and what is definitely feasible. So the thing that they can do is they can, drive incredible amounts of scale and they can drive incredible amounts of insights. And I was part of this, um, Jason's talk, which is like the, like the little secret DOD group. And they had this report on genomics like 10 years ago that was declassified. And it was all about like, like China getting into the genetic space and, um, how they're going to stratify their armies and send certain people up into Tibet who are, less likely to have um, altitude sickness than other people. So, like, very clear use cases. So I do think that there's, like, a whole world of, like, how is this information going to be used? And there needs to be a robust discussion around it. And I feel like right now in the United States, we fight about turf wars. So I don't worry as much on drug discovery because, again, drug discovery, China's not known for their drug discovery prowess. Like, I think they could always do something. They could definitely do more in, um, in diagnostics. Um, so drug discovery, I don't worry as much about, but I do think that there's, you know, some kind of undefined advantage of understanding what the human genome means and then leveraging that to an advantage. And again, like when I think about it, it's like, to me, there's that, um, that movie about them breaking the code in World War II. Oh, yeah. What's it called? Uh, well, it's a story of Bletchley Park yeah. and, and Alan Turing. Yeah, Turing. Uh-huh. So I think about the, the genome like that. Like there's a race going on. And, like, we want to decipher this code. And China, like, we have some advantage. Like, technically, the U.K. with Glaxo or, like, the Wellcome Trust and, um, you know, the United States with all of our human genome, like, we were winning. We were, like, really leading it. 
And we're totally like tripping over ourselves right now. And I think that there's a race on like understanding it. I think it's so fascinating what's going to come of big data. And I think China has a huge advantage because they have a lot of people that they've hired who understand big data. I mean, you look at Baidu no, and the no, companies. No GDPR? <laughs> there's no GDPR. Um, and like I said, they have compliance and they have money. So my hope is like the United States, like we can, it's part of the reason why I feel like, again, a moral responsibility, we need to make sure that people have access to like helping decipher and understand the whole, um, you know, all the information that we're collecting and like help to mine it and, 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 you know, understand like really what is it, you know, again, I always tell my kids, I'm like, there's a fine line between you and a slug um, because like, like literally because like you have the same DNA and, you know, but clearly it, 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 you come out quite different. So I think it's a, it's a big race. And I think it's an issue that, like, it's so underfunded right now in this country. I want to ask you, how do you, if you were a czar of, you know, all healthcare policy, uh, so you're in control of one-fifth of the U.S. economy as a result, uh, what's, and you had a magic wand, and, but you have one day. You only get one day to do something. What, what's I would make a single-payer system. Single-payer system. Single payer Say system. more. I think it's, you have all the wrong incentives right now because you, make, you don't make money on cost savings. Like, honestly, like, it was the group that taught me about prevention is Kaiser. You know, I was a Kaiser baby. I felt like my Kaiser team, they are the ones who, you know, they used to send out a book called Healthways, and it was all about how to take care of yourself and prevent. And my pediatrician, who's still a good friend, who I still see... And, you know, he's the one who would sit me down and be like, this is how you know when you're sick. This is how you know when to go. I always knew the nurses on the advice line. Like, we, they were, like, very much about teaching. I love, I had this one example, actually, with my daughter. Um, we were sick, and we were in Fiji, and I wasn't sure if she potentially had meningitis. And I called my pediatrician, um, who's part of Stanford, who's concierge, and she was like, I don't know, Anne, your symptoms are mix, you should probably come home. And then I called Kaiser and she's like, oh, you're like the 50th person this hour. It's the flu lady, go home. And I didn't go home. And, you know, it's, it's kind of also a good story of data. Like it was really valuable to get lots of data. It's like one of those things, like people at Stanford, like if you're a VIP, you actually never really want the VIP treatment because it's worse. Like people, when like you're cordoned off in like a separate section, like you want... What out everyone of touch else gets. with the reality. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they like we had a friend who was an oncologist at Stanford, and she was he was in the VIP after a surgery, and because he was VIP, he wasn't getting as regular care, and he ended up like choking and and you know suffocating, had brain damage, and he can no longer work. Like, but it was like literally all because he wasn't in the central space. So there's a lot of things about you know you don't necessarily want to always have that exclusivity. So for me. Again, if I was the czar, I think the most important thing that you could do is single-payer system and unite. You unify everyone on one plan and you drive incentives like in that capacity. If the government was the single-payer system here, you would have an incentive to prevent people from being obese and diabetic. And those two things alone would dramatically change this country. Great. Let's open it up for questions. Hi, I'm Jin. I'm a child psychologist and I'm founder of a company called Baby Noggin fascinated by your notion about digital phenotyping. So I just want you to explain a bit more about where you're seeing digital phenotyping maybe within 23andMe and how that world will change. Well, I think we'll be able to do things like um, we're going to start collecting steps. We're collecting some step data now. You'll be able to collect sleep. We're collecting um, hearing. We have cognitive tools. So cognitive tools are a pretty interesting measure. Like if you can start, if you can get people to do a cognitive tool, like these five games every single year, so I'm 45 now, if I can do it for the next 20 years, I assume at some point the company will be able to pick up like, okay, is your, is there a cognitive decline? And then is there something like the hope here is then like, is there something you could do or early intervention? And you know, and that's actually what we hear. Like we had somebody who just wrote in the other day, about how his mother is homozygous for the Alzheimer's variants. And as the moment she started having symptoms, they got her into treatment. She started therapy. Like, you know, does early intervention make a difference? And, and I would think that would. So digital phenotyping, like I think cognitive is going to be one of the main ones. Like even how you tap on your phone, there's a good amount of data about that. 
Google purchased like one of these forks that they can use in Parkinson's that measures your vibrations, um, you know, or how much shaking. So I think there's a lot. There's another company um, that was bought by another sort of health conglomerate that measures the stress in your voice. And I kind of love this because they would show when you'd get a call and they'd be like, look, your mother is calling. The last five calls, you were agitated. Um, and so, <laughs> and then I would try to coach you, like, are you agitated again? Do you want to like <laughs> change? So it was, it's like, it's really interesting. Like stress is one of those things, like it's not well defined in this country either. And, you know, you're going to be able to learn stress through your phone. How do you think about that when we extend that to the employer? And, and these concerns that are coming up around privacy with employers? I utterly, like, one of my other drives, like, healthcare should not be through your employer. Like, I find it crazy. Like, if you leave 23andMe and you lose, like, like we offer certain types of benefits. And all these companies, like Redbrick and Omada and Grand Rounds, they only sell through employers. Like, I don't know. Like, why is my access to these services dependent upon where I work? I think it's crazy. And so, like, we're trying to, like, it's one of the things that we're trying to do when we have scale is, like, allow a marketplace so that people can just get these things. We're really trying to create an entirely different system that's not dependent on your employer. And I think, like, people should utterly, the same way, like, if you have, you know, like, I ran, I, I'm an aggressive parker and I, like, slightly overparked it and it pulled off my whole bumper. And they're like, oh, you probably don't want to report this to the insurance. I'm like, no, of course I don't want to report it to my insurance. Like... You don't, you just, you're, you, we're all used to that from a car perspective. And so you want to do the same thing in healthcare. I have the flu. I don't want to report it to my insurance. Yeah. I, just like, then just, I mean, the reality is like, there should be a whole world that's like, you, again, outside the healthcare system. Like the majority, like all of us, in the, like most of us, you don't need to go for like a sore throat, like a lot of the basics. Like, why are we like going in this like awful system? And when you have, like, a real specialty and a real need, yes, like, then you want to be triaged in the right way. But a lot of care even can be at home and stuff, so. Great. Other questions? Thank you. I'm Ali with a venture capital firm called Data Collective, DCVC. So you mentioned the single-payer health at one, one part, and uh, you are a direct-to-consumer healthcare company, and basically mentioned or we are seeing more direct-to-consumer. How do you see these kind of working together, or if you have more employer-based or government-based healthcare, how do you think that affects innovation on the direct-to-consumer health? I think there, it's one thing I learned when I was investing in India, is that like there was a really robust direct-to-consumer market. Part of it is like people are 100% used to the idea that your employer or your insurer should pay for everything. So we have to retrain people in some ways to say, like, you should pay for some of it. So people are used to that with, like, you know, plastic surgery and fertility and stuff like that but you should pay more there should be two systems you know you should have a hundred percent you have like your your single payer system that is that provides your care and the critical and that guidance and then you should absolutely have a direct-to-consumer where there's some things that you are just you know you want to do on your own isn't there a challenge to riff on that for a second? Because, you know, like I remember Grand Rounds when it was starting the first time and I was just helping them out a little bit and it was called Second Opinions and we went to people and we said, hey, you should get the second opinion. They were like, well, you know, you make it almost nearly free and they're like, well, I don't want to second guess my doctor to all the other reasons. And you end up having to only, you end up forced as a business model to turn into selling to the employer. So, I, But I, that goes I, to your uh, question about like the long term, like the hockey stick, like it's, it's like sticking to your guns. Like I'm always disappointed. Like I always tell grand rounds, I tell oh, and all of them, like continue having a direct to consumer option and have your employer option too, but don't give up because like the only way you're going to change the world, like it takes time. Like I remember we had our big launch. Like I always tell people in the company, like we had our big launch. We had like all these celebrities. It was accidentally during fashion week. And like, it was like, Barry Diller and Rupert Murdoch and like all these people hosting this big like we were front page of the style section we were time invention of the year and I was selling 15 to 20 kits a day like it was awful and we sold that many for years like our volume like you look at our curve like right now our, our our curve is still opposite like the hockey stick looks like the first nine years and then it started to take off 
But if you want to change, you got to stick to it. And like, I look at all these companies out there that just like go to the employer pathway and it's like death by a thousand cuts that pathway. But like, I think you should have two, two versions and like try to keep one because like the consumer and that's what we're again. And I understand the pain of those companies. Like we're trying to say like, we'll have a platform that will be big enough that will help support. Like if grand rounds can come on and say, listen, second opinions, here's the value of it. Like most people also don't understand the value of second opinions. Like I do think like New York times had a great article a couple of days ago about like a second opinion of this woman whose husband and was like had, they thought he was going to have all kinds of problems and she's the one who figured it out and she got a second opinion. There's all kinds of like, I do think like the, the, the major press is trying to put more of those types of stories out there and I think that there's, that's one thing you learn in the community and like getting people to talk about those stories, but you have to educate people and it is not easy. Like I think about this as like, this is our next decade, have to get people to think about like, you actually have to take more control of your health and like, you can't necessarily rely on your doctor. Like one of the main things that we try to push on people is like the one-to-one relationship with your doctor is no longer the gold standard. Most people in this country don't have a primary care physician. How, how do you, like, we're living in an area that also has an incredibly high rate of people who don't believe in vaccines. I, I, yeah. I'm just curious because I, I, it, it's on one side we, we try to tell people, like, don't trust, but there's this other side where we're like, whoa, really? <laughs> yeah, I think there's things, you know, it's when they, again, I remind, like, my research team all the time, like, one, one of the most important things for us is, like, to be fun and to get people to believe and be, like, excited about our data, but never deviate from the science. Like we're hardcore in the science. It's like little things even like I just wrote, like there was this awful New York Times editorial about us and we just got our edit, our, our rebuttal published and they came back and they were trying to trip me up. They're like, do you have the sources of your data? And I was like, yeah. And like five minutes later we sent it back and she was really surprised. She's like, Oh, most companies don't have their sources. And, And I was like, yeah, like we're really good people. Like we're really, like we are on it. And so, you know, I like to remind people like Gwyneth Paltrow is like really popular with Goop and she's like out there pushing all kinds of things. So when I go to my research team, I was like, your competition is Gwyneth. Like you need to be as fun as Gwyneth. Like she knows how to market. She knows how to get stuff out there. And, you know, like, no one is researching the CDC's website and, like, their vaccine schedules, but, like, everyone's reading, like, Gwyneth and there's the other, um, like, porn star anti-vaccine person who's, like... I mean, it's just... It's fascinating to me that people would rather believe, like, a celebrity with no science background than somebody with a science background. So there's a total crisis in scientific education. And I think in some ways it goes to your point about like, oh, I don't want to challenge my doctor. Like in some ways we've kind of been taught to be lambs. Like we just, we don't really trust, but we also don't know how to challenge. And then when Gwyneth, who's like kind of more fun and cool, like challenges, you're like, oh, follow Gwyneth. So I think that's where there's a, there's like a big education. Like what's the right way to challenge? What's the right way to look at scientific information? Like what are, what's like, what's a real risk? And there's a huge, I mean, again, this is a massive challenge of, like, how do you educate people? And, like, one of the worst things the healthcare industry does is, like, we tell people that you are too incompetent to possibly know. Like, even, like, when I went to the doctor in the pregnancy and they're like, oh, you have to do this blood test. And I was like, well, why? You just do. It's, it's, what do you mean, why? <laughs> he's like, well, it's going to tell you, you know, about risk. I'm like, what? And, like, it literally, like, it was, like, torture finally figuring out the formula and realizing like, okay, there's the ultrasound and then there's the blood test and the blood test really adds almost no value. But or like amnio when they say like, because they try to say, tell, sell you on the downs thing and you're like, look, you can just work out the base theorem. And, yeah. and it's just like, that's not a good decision in many cases. Right. There's a lot of healthcare that is just sort of blindly passed down. And that's one thing, like we should do a better job of helping people understand and explain. And again, like that's what I really got from Kaiser. Like, my doctors always explain. They never talk down to me. I remember being, like, seven and being, like, why do I have to do this? Like, what is this? And, and they always explained. It was great. It was, it was an amazing experience. But, like, you want to teach people how to take care of themselves and, like, how these things work and how your body works. 
<clears throat> I'm Christina Lamontagne with J&J uh, Health Technology. Um, I was really interested to hear about the drug discovery ideas, and we talked about how healthcare needs to be disrupted. Probably pharma needs to be disrupted as well. So if you're taking your data, using that to power drug discovery, what can you do from there in terms of maybe knowing the people who use the drugs, um, making adherence potentially better, compliance? Where, where do you go once you've proven the thesis around drug discovery? So I think that's a ways off still. So it's like 10 years out. We are doing a lot of programs now with, drug dis- with, with pharma companies. Like J&J was actually our Series C lead investor. But we, we're doing a lot around clinical trials. And like clinical trials are an awful experience. Like you're, you're a human subject. And you, you're brought in. Everything is taken from you. They don't return any results to you. And then they're going to charge you a ton if the drug works. That's awful. Like, there's no other company, like, there's no consumer company that would ever do anything like that. So, like, part of it is, I mean, it's, like, it's kind of fascinating, like, when I talk to pharma companies and and (laughs) someone said, they're, like, we hear, I said something, I was, like, you have no relationship with your customers. And they're, like, that's not true. We hear from them all the time. I was, like, well, do you write back? And he's, like, oh, well. And I was, like, no. (laughs) Like, like. It's a relationship is called two ways. Like it's got to be both. It's bi-directional. So I think it's like one of the things like with pharma, like there's stuff pharma could do now. And it's so sad because they have the worst reputation. And, you know, again, I kind of like, we, we have this clinical trial stuff. We're doing work there. We've given up in some areas where it's like, it's really hard. I've been really impressed with GSK and it's the reason why we partnered with them. And I think there's a real potential for starting to change. So I would say like one of the first things like, Pharma companies need to, first and foremost, like, return results. Have a different approach in a clinical trial. Treat people like a patient or treat people like a partner. Like, give them that dignity of, like, knowing what happened in the study. Give them the dignity of saying, like, okay, now you can get your drugs at cost. You're in the study. Like, you get something out of it. It's really, like, it's, we really treat people badly in healthcare. And so, like, it's no wonder. Like, no one ever wants to be a human subject. Just, like, change that word for one. So it's actually something that strikes me as really interesting is, is I've always thought of uh, as your approach and 23andMe is really you're almost this community activist and community organizer for, for people to come together to talk about these problems. And it actually gets to this, this, this last part because if I don't get here out, of, uh, out here at, in a couple minutes, uh, I have childcare duty. And my wife is here also, and so she will insist that I will... You should have brought them. I I, I should have grilled them. My my daughter also has a 23andMe backpack that Anne sent us, and it is her favorite thing ever. Uh, It's actually amazing because we sent these backpacks to a lot of people, but almost everyone gave it to their teenagers, and they glow. They're 100% reflective. That's amazing. And and so, yeah, that's... So, so here's the question, and this gets to the 23andMe part. You're You're bringing the village together. Uh, and 23andMe is the platform by which it's happening in a unique way that's different than healthcare. It takes all of us a village, and, and this is one of the village questions that is always asked in, in, when, in these type of events as for the luminaries, is you didn't get here with, without a village. Tell us about one person who was super influential to you in your effort that made you who you are. It's hard to pick one. I'm super lucky because, like, I'm surrounded by a family and I'm surrounded by people who've been really, really nice to me. And in some ways, it's, like, one of the things I've always said is that there's men, there's women, and there's assholes, and you should just avoid the assholes. And, and they come in all flavors. So, so I've been really lucky because I think I've, I've been able to sort of target and find the right people to, to interact with. And, again, I have my family my sister has always been, my sister who's the CEO of YouTube has always been incredibly, has always been incredibly helpful. I, I look at people like um, Diane von Furstenberg who, and Ariana Huffington who, and this other guy who used to be the head of um, the Motion Picture Association um, who, like, I can't even remember his name, but he was just like so nice and like really just gave a lot of advice. Like people who almost, like, again, they're sort of esteemed, like, famous people who believe in you. And then they would say, like, there's, like, oh, like, don't worry about being nervous. Like, nervous is, like, it means you're about to be great. Like, you can do this. Like, 
Diane von Furstenberg always talks about. She's like, you're in charge. Like, you go. Like, you, you can do it. Like, someone who just believes in you, it's so valuable. And I think it's, it's never one person. It really is a community. And I'm lucky because I think I've, I've tried to always find people who, like, give me really valid feedback um, or constructive feedback but fundamentally believe in me. And I think it's also one of the things, like my sister and I, we say it all the time, we have a duty to the next generation to mentor because the same way people helped us, um, we have to help others. And I think it's a real issue. Like Silicon Valley, like all of these different luminaries, like they have a responsibility to get out and to mentor people and to believe in people, to say positive things. So I look at like all of you, like, and it's like part of the reason why I love this whole concept in the village is I think it is you can be successful like so much of your success like you can have your idea you can have you know there's luck but then there is the community that makes you and if I'd been surrounded by people who were like constantly telling me in the FDA is like oh you have to give up you have to give up it would have been really hard to push forward but I was surrounded by people who were like oh you can do it like totally like you go like that's great And I used to have the attitude, like I used to tell people in the company, I was like, look, other companies have to pay millions of dollars to get meetings with regulators. I was like, in our case, they came to us. And so there's a little bit of also how you spin everything. Like there's always a silver lining. So, you know, and part of that comes from being surrounded by a community that fundamentally like helps you see the bright side or helps you see a solution. And so again, like I'm always really grateful to... I've been surrounded by such great people. And I think that's why, again, like this resonated with me of how much, how important it is to be surrounded by other great people who are going to help, like help you believe, like give you constructive feedback and then going to believe in you. And if it's not this great idea, I always tell people in the building, like everyone's great at something and you might not be great in this building. You might not be great in that role, but like you're always great at something. So you have to find that. And, and I think that's what like a village and a community helps you find that. That's a perfect note to, uh, note to, to wrap up on. Um, we're going to transition to a, a networking reception, but first, please give a huge round of applause for DJ and Anne. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.